Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and welcome to a first for Future of Finance. It's a case study in which we're going to explore with the fintech the journey that they have made. We're going to ask them where the idea came from, where the first customers came from, where the funding comes from, and most importantly, how what they're doing might fit into what you're doing. Our guinea pig is Stepladder, a fintech startup currently embarked on a crowdfunding campaign to fuel its growth as a peer-to-peer lending and borrowing platform for first-time buyers. My guests are Matt Addison, the CEO and co-founder at Stepladder, and his co-founder, Lucy Mullins. We also, of course, have you, our audience, and we want this to be as lively a conversation as we can manage. So do please uh, send in questions, comments, observations throughout this discussion, and we will make sure that we deal with those straight away so you can be part of this conversation right from the outset. But I thought we'd begin um, at the beginning, as it were, um, and ask our two co-founders what their personal backgrounds are, what it was in their experience that brought you both to this uh point. Um, Lucy, you, you had a spell at HSBC, you had a spell in the hedge fund industry at the Oxford Man Institute. Uh, what brought you to co-found Stepladder? Lovely to be here. Lovely to be a guinea pig, Dominic. Thank you. So yes, we met when I was uh, having, having my brief spell in the hedge fund industry at the University of Oxford. So my background, my career started in banking and then I moved on to the University of Oxford and set up the first academic industry collaborative research centre. So always been very interested in kind of new models of finance and how you translate that into the real world. And then I started a journey of becoming an executive and professional coach. And actually, that's probably the, the background that's most relevant that I bring to Stepladder. So a lot of my work prior to meeting Matt and, and discovering the joys of Roskers, which we'll, we'll dive into, which Stepladder is based on, was about cheerleading people to reach their goals in their professional lives, in their personal lives. And how do you overcome those sort of mental blockers for doing things that you want to do? And so that background in finance alongside that coaching sort of fitted perfectly when I was introduced to Matthew um, and he explained the idea of Roskers, which he'd been studying. So I'll sort of hand over to Matthew to explain the background to, to Stepladder. Matt, you were, you were at Goldman, then at a variety of, of hedge fund firms. What brought you to Stepladder, the idea of setting this up? My goodness, that's a great question, Dominic. Um, the genesis of Stepladder is really three independent vectors meeting. Um, I have started my first startup back when I was in university at Stanford in the late 90s. It's a business that's still going. One of the four of our co-founders is now the CEO of this business, you know, 20 years on, and it was focused on assistive technologies. Um, and so I always had an entrepreneurial bias in my career selection, moving from Goldman to smaller hedge funds where I had a, a more direct role in building a business was always very much part of my DNA. The other is having spent so much time in finance, the better part of 20 years, um, building, being able to build a uh, proprietary credit model like we have at Stepladder, being able to understand how Stepladder fits in the financial ecosystem, understand the behavioral finance and structuring mechanisms that really make it work as a digital proposition needed to be there in order to be able to midwife this idea that goes from a very local community phenomenon into a scalable digital one. Uh, and then the final dimension I genuinely believe is that there's a huge 
glaring need in the UK today for collaborative finance. I think there's a generation of people who have become social with their health, with their fitness, with their diet, and I believe that with their money as well. And that's a next big wave of innovation in financial services, collaborative finance. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've used the term collaborative finance. You've talked about a, a, a glaring gap in the market. Lucy's talked about helping cheerleading people. I think it was a phrase she used to, to achieve their life goals and, and saving is obviously one of the things which you need to do in order to achieve your, your life goals. My question is this. So we talk a little bit now about, about the type of customers or clients you're, you're looking to appeal to. Um, and this is, you say, a, it's a collaborative finance savings circles for, for people looking to buy get down a deposit on buying their first house now the obvious question is um why do young people need this why don't they just save the money themselves when i was first doing diligence on this business um a, a very quick shorthand that stayed with me was the typical first-time buyer spends about six years actually getting their deposit together in the uk these days they spend about six months actually looking at different properties, getting to know what it is they actually want to buy, about six weeks arranging their mortgage and the financing of the property, and about uh, six days in hiring all the other transaction service providers like their solicitor, their surveyor, et cetera. That snowballing effect means that as consumers who transact infrequently, they feel like they're pressured to make decisions faster and faster with big ticket items where they don't feel like they have support and infrastructure and sufficient experience and therefore end up having a horrible experience in terms of buying. But during that entire six year period while they were saving, they were basically wandering the desert on their own with the alternative basically being open a postal account, maybe maybe something like the lifetime ISA today. So the idea was to transform the journey for those first time buyers during that part of their journey where they're saving, they're building up that deposit into one where they're educated. And in addition to a little bit continuing this example or this metaphor of crossing the desert, put them into a caravan together across the desert, supported and supporting each other and with a higher likelihood of knowing where the oases are and ultimately making to their destination. So the idea of stepladder is to create almost like an NCT for the prospective first time buyer, allow them to enjoy the group economies from the transaction services providers and tilt the balance back in their favor and make them as well equipped for the buying process as they could. And this is where the coaching element, the empowerment of collaborative finance really takes on a whole, whole new dimension. One of our supporters at uh, at Future of Finance runs Money Hub, and she comes from Australia and has never 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 tires of pointing out to us how dreadful uh, the UK housing market is in terms of its <laughs> complexity and difficulty, and how unpleasant it is for everyone concerned. So I, I certainly resonates, I'm sure, with me and with lots of other people listening. Um, but tell me, in the end, these these circles do depend upon matching up people who have the same sort of means and the same sort of goals. How how hard is that to do, particularly you know, once, you, once you've got going, I imagine it becomes easier. But when you first set out, how difficult it is to find those matching people? I'll let Lucy answer the question with regard to how it felt when we started out, since she was actually on the front lines developing our tone of voice with our members and getting them to feel comfortable trusting us as a platform. Uh, and then I'll talk a little bit more about why there are natural network effects to the business and the velocity that we've been able to pick up. But Lucy, maybe a couple of those more stories, because you really bring it home. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly, certainly matching people up in the early days was, was tricky because 
I'd speak to people on the phone, you know, this was a very hands-on business at the beginning to really build the trust, which I know we'll talk about later, but people needed to speak to a human and say, well, you know, is this real and how does it work? So I'd speak to people and I'd get somebody interested in the idea and keen to sign up and they'd say, well, I'd like to put aside 500 pounds a month for 12 months. That's what I need to do. And then I'd speak to somebody else and they'd say, well, I can't afford 500 pounds. I want to do 300 pounds or 200 pounds. And then I'd speak to somebody else and they wanted to do a thousand pounds for 30 months. So we had kind of three circles that we were trying to get going and I had sort of a couple of people in each one and I couldn't get critical mass uh, in any of the circles and then by the time we had a few more people sign up the first people that had said oh I'd like to join this but of course you know they'd found an alternative way because three or four months had passed so it did take a long time to match people and actually at the beginning we hacked it and we just got friends and family of ours to join the circles as kind of dummy people in the circle so any real members of Stepladder would get drawn first so they actually had a great deal because they knew they'd get drawn in the first few months and then the rest of the circle was made up of Matt and myself and and friends and family and so that was a great way to kind of hack getting it going but as we've got bigger it's been much easier to match and Matt will talk a bit more about that matching process. And Lucy before you go though the, the alternatives people were using what, what were they when you spoke to these people some wanted 300 some 500 some thousand what, what were they doing instead at that time using banks or building societies or doing it amongst themselves in a DIY fashion? So we do have some people that do a DIY circle, but that was less common back then, actually. It was it was bank of mum and dad, really, every time um, that was that was stepping in. Um, and, you know, what we're able to do at Stepladder is help people that don't have access to bank of mum and dad. But for those that do, they often want a top up. So we do attract those people. But in the early days, I think they were sort of going to their parents and saying, oh, you know, I can't get this deposit. And then bank of mum and dad were, 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 were taking our customers away from us in the early days. And to speak to the, the larger macro dynamic, um, you know, it, it's fascinating that it took us about four to six months to get our first two circles. This is back at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, Dominic, when Lucy's describing that, you know, people would sign up, but we would lose some of the ones who had already signed up before because life had moved on for them. And to now on the 1st of May, we launched 19 circles on the first day of May this month. And the contrast between taking six months to get two circles going to launching 19, and now we're already filling halfway full or more on the next eight circles that start on the 1st of June, and it's the 6th of May, it tells you about the natural network effects. When we have hundreds of members or prospective members applying every month, we can find those matches. So that on the 1st of May, we had four circles that launched at 100 pounds a month. We had two circles at 500 a month and two circles at 250 pounds a month, all able to get going in parallel to each other. And once they get started, they're a closed group supporting each other and connected to each other. And that's fascinating because you go from something that is digital and scalable and essentially enjoying these network effects to something that is naturally community and bespoke once the individual members are underway. And that's a fascinating hybrid of bringing together essentially digital scale with a connected financial product. Well, I'll come back to that in a minute, but but because I'm interested in how you recruit all those hundreds of prospective members. But but the question Henry Rashman has asked a, um, an interesting question for you, Matthew, which is, could you please expand on your analogy comparing trends in physical fitness and financial fitness? In my experience, managing money is significantly harder than eating less pudding and going <laughs> for a run. Actually, I, I have the opposite, but um, uh, don't talk about potatoes with me. But what, what is the answer to that? What, expand on that analogy for us, Matt. Absolutely. So I think there are two parts to this. I believe that as social animals and with um, 
the evolutionary instincts that we have of being social, it has historically consistently led to higher success rates across board towards reaching any goal. Lucy, who's a fitness nut, is often fond of drawing the analogy to joining a running club when you're going to run your first marathon. The success rate for people who set out to run their first marathon when they join a running club is 10 times as high as when you try and learn to train yourself, the tapering, the diet that you need, what is the right regimen to follow. And there is learning involved uh, and the transfer of that knowledge within a group that you trust is accelerated. And so we've heard often about stock picking communities and circles that form of people exchanging ideas in order to be able to uh, encounter new terrain together and being empowered by doing so. And so I would argue that there's a clear social dynamic which extends to finance as much as it does to help and fitness. Um, I'd say the other one that is equally relevant as we're talking about the social dynamic of the circles is that when members join a circle, they have a fixed group of people, a safe space. And I think that that helps them feel more likely to reach their goals and support in reaching their goals and less likely to fall off the wagon. I think Lucy, you have some amazing testimonials of some of our members who this is the first time they were able to raise something like an emergency fund for themselves or the first time they open an account that actually has capital in it as opposed to just paying the bills. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we, we started by marketing step ladder of speed. You know, you could get your deposit earlier, but actually time and time again, people say it's the discipline um, of somebody holding them to account and then knowing the money's going out. So for me, the, fi the fitness analogy works really well from a neuroscience perspective, which is sort of at the heart of my passion of coaching is, you know, we're managing a body budget as humans and, and goes back to when we lived in caves of you want that instant gratification. And that for me is the big similarity between finance and fitness is, I mean, good for you, Henry, that you can go for a run. I know many people that want to and they don't, but it's that idea of sitting on the sofa and thinking, well, now I should go for a run, but I'd actually rather watch another episode of Shit's Creek or something. And it's the same with money. So when Dominic asks who our competitors are, you know, at one level, it's bank of mum and dad, but another level, it's buying a coffee, buying a computer game, buying a book, because actually that competing for your money that you could put aside towards a property deposit, in the moment, the instant gratification is to spend that money on something you want to in the same way that you know eating a dairy milk or a potato or whatever it is that floats your boat is that instant gratification. So there, that's what we tend to find with people. It's that sort of discipline in the moment. So in a way you could say we're a personal trainer for your finances. And so being a member of these groups- Accountability. Group, sorry, Matt. You said- I was just gonna say it's accountability. It's an extremely yeah. powerful motivator. Okay, well, I was going to ask about that because it, it's a kind of, um, we use an old-fashioned word here, it's a kind of moral discipline, isn't it? People take on an obligation to the other members of the of the circle at the same time, don't they? And it's that which keeps them exactly. paying, I suppose. Um, you also raised the question of, um, well, perhaps you didn't, but the thought, thought certainly crossed my mind about trust. And yes. how, do, how do, A, how do the members get to trust each other if they're not, friends with each other, not known to each other first. And then, and then secondly, um, and you did touch on this, how did you get the potential customers to trust you? Trust is something we talk about a lot in Future of Finance. You know, it's, it's you know, in blockchain and so on, it's at the heart of, of, what, of, of things that we have all these intermediaries because we don't trust each other. You are an intermediary in this case, but at the same time, these people have got these obligations, these peer-to-peer -peer obligations as well. So where does that trust come from? Well, we, we talked about it a lot in the early days, didn't we? But I'd say for the first two and a half years, you know, trust was, so, it was just the word that came up all the time. And it's interesting to talk about it now because it's not something that we have to 
talk about so much anymore because of this natural network effect. People trust recommendations from their friends. So to flip the order of your question, actually, what we did is we got people to trust us first as we're the intermediary. And we are authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and you can look us up here and this is what happens if things go wrong. Once people trusted us, they when they joined a circle, there was less need for them to trust other people in the circle because we were the kind of trusted host of that circle. Um, and then in time, as we've grown bigger, people trust their friends when their friend says, oh, I got this property deposit. Of course, you think, oh, OK, this this is for real. So as time has gone on, time has time has been our friend in that regard. You know, people come back to us a, a year later and say, oh, you're, you're still going. And actually, this is legit. And oh, we've seen you in a newspaper and we've seen you win awards. And and so time has really helped us there. But in the early days, it was it was a lot of in-person building that trust um, as the hosts of the circle. Now, Matt, can we go back to, to what you were saying a little while ago about, you know, 19 uh, circles launched in a single day, the network effects are, are, are kicking in. What are the recruitment techniques? How are you how are you finding these people other than by word of mouth and, and recommendation? What techniques are you using to reach the potential customers? We initially found that because there is a lack of familiarity with the product, at least by the name that we're introducing in circles, whereas people, especially in diaspora communities, recognize them by local community names, uh, seeing them as stepladder circles requires still a little bit of bridging and nurturing. But we usually would engage through um, paid social media channels and have people who said, oh, that sounds interesting, or this can help me solve my problem. But then there was a nurturing journey of education through communication, regular updates, um, facilitate tutorials, um, even in-person sessions back when we could do that in the pre-COVID times. And so the idea was to, again, create this sense that there was uh, consistency from us and that we were available and that if someone wanted to engage over our website with an individual through a chatbot that was available, if they wanted to call in, there was someone on the line available to them. But the key thing, Dominic, was that over the course of the journey, what we did was we helped people understand what it was a step I was offering to the point where they would then submit an application. And that's where you can really see the velocity picking up in our business. Um, we really attract institutional investment to the business when we could show that that number went up from a handful of people who found us said, I'll, I'll punt on it to dozens and then ultimately hundreds of applications every month. And once we start doing that, the question is having the technology platform that takes them through the journey, make sure that they can go through the product knowledge and uh, experience classification that's required from a regulatory perspective, make sure that the, there's responsible lending uh, available for them and ultimately takes them through our own proprietary underwriting engine where we can facilitate the match. The better we match people to a group, ultimately the higher the success rate of the group as a whole is. And that's something that we're seeing again as a natural network effect. Um, I don't know if that entirely covers your question or if you want me to expand on any one of those dimensions, but the key thing was for people first to be aware of us, then to think about us as part of the solution, to make sure that we mitigated their objections and ultimately that we could facilitate the last part of the journey, which is actually to finish signing up. But just, I, I think a lot of people listening will be interested in this in this question. Just in, in that initial stage of raising awareness, did you find social media was the most effective way of making people aware of who you were and what you did? Our spending curves really showed that we want to build an audience first of people who we could have regular dialogue with. So paid social, rather than uh, directing people to a website, what we wanted to do was actually have a way to be in touch with them regularly. So we asked for them to enter their email, phone number, and then we started sending them communication so they'd hear from us regularly. That was actually the way that worked best for us versus, say, uh, paid search. 
But then the thing that we really realized that the paid social was working, the next step was actually to work with partners, ambassadors, people who actually have an audience already who are engaging with them about their personal finances and to partner with those individuals to provide a community solution by its local name, whether that's the Filipino community learning about Palawagan, but here in a regulated digital way, or the Nigerian community in the AJO, which they are partners. One of my favorites was when we saw how large the second generation Windrush community recognized that we were a partner just like Auntie was involved with, but we were doing it in a way that they could access on their mobile phone. That was when we really saw velocity uptake and the word starting to spread within a community. Mm -hmm. And so are there other patterns in the, in the type of customers you're attracting? Do they have a particular socioeconomic characteristics or particular geographies or particular, I don't know, affiliations that, that are discernible? I'd say oft, often they have heard of uh, a Rosca by one of the names that Matt just mentioned, a partner, an adjo, a chip fund. That's quite common. And what, what we're now beginning to see is people that haven't, as word is spreading. But for those early people who to trust us, they didn't have to get their head around the model. They had to get their head around, oh, this is somebody else running it, but they understood the model. So there's definitely a, a, definitely a skew in our, in our members of people that have heard of this who are from different communities around the world now living here and, and would say their family had, had used them. And then certainly because of the use case at the moment, and I know we'll talk later about other use cases for the Rosca, but, and we focused on this generational problem of buying a home. And then we're attracting that kind of 25 to 40 um, demographic not necessarily people who haven't got access to bank of mum and dad as I mentioned earlier um, sometimes people come to us and they've got some some money from bank of mum and dad and they want to top it up and sometimes it's people that don't have that access and need to save that money on their own so that tends to be the kind of demographic of people that we attract. What, what have you found has been the biggest hurdle for people to, to clear once they become aware of you and interested in, in taking part in a circle what, what's the biggest hurdle if, they have to get over in their minds or indeed in their finances life admin i would say you uh -huh. know time and time again back in 2017 and 18 when when we were still calling people and i'd get that direct feedback on the phone it was oh i, I keep meaning to do this i just haven't got around to it so it's that it, you know it's that discipline to sit down and kind of do that boring life admin of and, and often, you know, Matt and I will say, you know, that, that often only comes around once a month at, at best, you know, when you think, oh gosh, I must just do that life admin. So that, that's, that's been a hurdle, is that human behavior. Absolutely. And it's one of the things, again, it's existing habits. You're exactly right, Lucy. And a corollary of that is that if we have a member who's engaged uh, or a prospective uh, member who's engaged with us. It's about making sure that the process for them is as smooth and seamless as possible, that any concerns or reservations they have are clearly addressed in a really transparent way so that then they can complete the process. And so now we spend almost no time on outbound calls, but we do get the occasional member who comes back and says, actually, can you help me? Because I have, uh, I want to set aside 2000 pounds a month. And we sit there and say, well, you could take a couple spots in our 500 circle. And that kind of final uh, issue resolution means that we've been able to keep our team very, very tight while servicing, you know, a 40% growth rate every 100 days. And what, uh, what other benefits can you offer people who join circles other than having a good shot at getting a, uh, a house deposit in short order? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the idea of being um, part of a community and you touched on it earlier, this idea of a shared a shared goal and, and feeling like you're not in it alone. Matt mentioned the 
NCT. And for those people listening that don't know, the National Childbirth Trust, the, the group you join when you're having a baby because you're about to go through um, a potentially quite uh, life-changing experience together and you sort of learn from each other and share war stories. And so it's the idea of having a community of people around you with the shared goal, the speed that you've mentioned, the education that Matt talked about at the beginning. I mean, how do you know how to buy a house? Nobody teaches you how to do this. So actually, you know, we'll talk our members through that process of, well, what happens if your, your mortgage offer gets declined and where else do you go and how does that work? And then very practically, we report to the credit bureaus. So by paying in your monthly savings into Stepladder, and then we report to the credit bureau, which can increase your credit score, which is a, a lovely benefit that our members enjoy. Yeah, there's group buying discounts. Yeah, we all know market asymmetries grow where you transact infrequently and the marketplace providers are there seeing you as just another person coming through the system. There's a way to keep that service provider honest by saying we are regularly sending you uh, prospective customers. They are fantastic customers to service because they will complete their on this journey and we've already checked them out. We have that dialogue with them, but therefore you should reflect improved pricing to them. And ultimately that starts with something simple as one-off survey or a solicitor referral, but ultimately grows to the point of origination where we can essentially provide our members with better tailored mortgages because of the information we have and the relationship we have with them. And we can deliver them back to a lender who's looking for someone with exactly that type. And that's where as a finance guy, I see really clearing a major deadweight loss of a real lemons problem between borrower and lender by having gone to know that prospective borrower months or years before they're ready to transact and the lender not having to deal with a market that's broken in terms of being a wholesale uh, disintermediated mortgage broking market. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're actually supplying advisory services as well. And doesn't that make the business a bit more difficult to, to scale? It wouldn't be advisory service. I would have to say that, again, mortgage advice is a separate regulated function. But what we are able to do is essentially quantitatively match our members with what their profile looks like as opposed to that process start from scratch with a mortgage broker. And so the conversion rate is that much higher. It's uh, an affiliate relationship. Um, in terms of the time we spend with a member, Typically right now, we spend about 30 to 50 minutes over the course of 12 months with a member once they've uh, joined a circle. But those 50 minutes are transformative for them over the course of their journey. They've just drawn their lump sum. They're now raised, engaged in the process and we can help them arrange what the next steps are and provide a sounding board for them. So the idea is not a quantity, but it's a quality of engagement with members and providing them a sounding board. And that, again, amortized over the course of a year is a a fantastic ROI for us and transformative for them. Mm -hmm. And that 50 minutes, it's not a constraint on scaling this business is the, the sky the limit here? How scalable is it, the model you have? I mean, we have, and Lucy, you know, had a membership team now that is three and a half folks and our size has grown by, we started 24 people in uh, the beginning of 2019. We have a thousand now and the membership team is smaller now than it was in 2019, right Lucy? Absolutely. I think the thing is with the educational pieces, some people want to have that on the phone. Um, and we do that as part of that call when they get drawn. But actually, a lot of people are very happy with a blog. But because we're the trusted resource, they know, oh, I can just pop into Stepladder and I can read this little piece of information or watch this video or join an Instagram live. So there's a lot of digital content that we produce that, you know, just goes straight out to our members. and They can log into the platform and access it. Um, and, and that helps them on their way. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about the um, how these circles actually work in a minute. Before we do, I'd like to ask you one question, which I think everybody who's started a business um, would be interested to hear the answer to, which is what have you actually learned as you look back to where this, where you first had this idea and the earliest days of getting it off the ground? Um, what's What's been the thing that surprised you most or you've had to, the biggest change you've had to make? Pivots, they call them, of course, but, but um, what have you learned, I suppose? over the over the years the last three years i mean so so many things the big one that springs to mind for me which is very stepladder specific is that i mentioned earlier on a thousand pound circle for 30 months um, and we thought we were going to fill that and i just laugh at that idea now and we we had this idea back in 2018 to have a first step circle which was shorter and smaller um, and i think because at the beginning we were so fixated on the buying your first home challenge we thought, well, what's the point of doing a £25 a month circle to raise £500 over 20 months? You know, what's £500 going to do? But actually, that was that was a really good pivot for us because people who were thinking, oh, should I join? Do I trust this? Can I afford this? When we launched those first step circles, people said, oh, £25, fine, let me have a go at this. And then what we've seen over time is as people complete that first step circle and they get their £500 in their bank account, they think, oh, this is good. And it builds their confidence to say, oh, I could do a thousand pounds. And it builds their trust in us and confidence in themselves to say, I can commit to doing more. So we have people that kind of loop circles together. They get drawn and then they say, great, put that into my next circle and off I go again. And that's how they build up to their property deposit from as little as 25 pounds a month. Mm -hmm. So the optimum duration of, a, of, of one of these peer-to-peer -peer circles is settled where? Mm -hmm. 14 months is where we found um, that's the sweet spot. Think of it a little bit like a mobile phone contract. People want to have the option to then renew after that amount of time. And we're having a really great uptake rate on that. But the reality is that's about the horizon. Most people feel comfortable, but we've had members like Navjot who was in our first circle in 2018 has two spots in a 500 circle that's finishing up now in June. And he's been a participant in a circle the entire way through that journey, even though there've been uh, four successive circles. So the thing from my perspective is we've learned how to unitize in order to be able to serve as many different people as possible and keep that velocity accelerating. And at the same time, we've also learned, um, and I think this is a really important learning about the journey, is that the thing that matters most to our members is that they have someone on their side, that there is this support that they're a part of a community. In the first time buyer marketplace, what's broken is the fact that it's an individual or maybe a couple who are navigating this journey and they're feeling put upon by every side and they're not sure what's really going on there. I mean, how many times have we heard stories about a state agent messing around a young couple who's looking at a house, pretending there's another offer in the place already. The point is having someone on your side is fundamentally disruptive to the marketplace where you as an individual feel like you're on the wrong side of uh, a, a stitch up. Now, we're getting some more questions in, which I'll turn to in a sec, but just, just talk me through very quickly how these circles actually work. We, we, you, you've talked about the, the, um, the optimal, the duration as being um, 18 months, I think you said, was it lower than that, was it? Well, 12 to 14 is where 12, we ended okay, like 18 months over time, but 12 to 14 is where we settled right now. And what's the, what's the spread in terms of the amounts people save? I imagine that's variegated over time, but what's the range? We've settled, 
We've settled in on a monthly price points of 2,500, 250, and 500 right now. As you get into people who are setting aside a thousand or more, they would take a couple spots in, say, the 500 circle. Uh, and we underwrite to what an individual is able to set aside, and they can mix and match to their own taste. So we have some people who, with uh, what we've underwritten to 300 of capacity, taking one spot in the 250, and someone else decides to take three spots in the 100 circle. And so we are happy to accommodate either one of those choices because everyone runs through our same uh, engine. Uh, and just very quickly, how, how difficult is it to join one of these circles? Once you, this gets, as I said, we, we've discussed, it gets easier as more people, the network effects kick in and more people become part of it. But just Lucy, talk me through very quickly. Um, I want to join a circle. Um, how quickly can I, can I join one and um, get comfortable with it? Excellent. We'll get, we'll get you signed up this afternoon, Dominic. Mm -hmm. uh, you pop onto our website and you fill in a few details about yourself and the whole process from coming onto our webpage to being a member of a circle could take as little as 10 minutes. It depends how much detail you read our terms and conditions in. Uh, so I think the average time people spend uh, going through the actual process is probably about 12 to 15 minutes. Um, for different people who take longer to get comfortable with the idea may want to do research, but we do see a lot of people coming straight onto the website, filling in a few details, date of birth, address, salary, um, expenditure, and then they have to take a small quiz uh, because of the way that we're regulated. We have to make sure people understand the product. So it's a 12 question quiz that people take and then they get offered up the circle that matches their affordability. They click on it, say they've read the documents and uh, pop in their bank details. And yeah, that process takes anywhere between sort of 10 and 20 minutes. Well, I'll come back to the question whether there's any route around those dreaded questionnaires. But before we do, um, let's let's take some of these uh, questions. Tanya Diaz asks, what happens once they've bought a first time home? They discover issues like cladding. This is a big issue in London, taking people off the property ladder when they can't meet service charge costs and can make their homes unsellable. Does stepladder help those customers? All right, so you bought the flat and then you discover there's cladding outside and nobody will take it off your hands. What can you do for them? Uh, to borrow the expression from Ben Franklin, a stitch in time saves nine. One, we haven't had the cladding experience yet with any of our members who have been home buyers, but we have had a number of members with whom we've had a conversation about the relative strengths and weaknesses of something like the help to buy program, which may create, because it's a new build, uh, certain issues with when you go to sell the property on, or if you go into shared ownership and that maximizes the amount of house you can buy for a set deposit, but then you have to think about staircasing because otherwise there's the ongoing rent. So the idea is to have a conversation with our members about the decision they need to make. And that doesn't require a lot of time, but it does require enough familiarity with the different programs that are out there to be able to help them make their own decisions, which ultimately they do. And so I would say in the case of the cladding, one of the conversations we would have on a new build is, have you considered these things? And some of that, again, going back Dominic, to your point about automating, are part of modules that we have on our roadmap to allow people to reach those own conclusions themselves and say, ah, you're thinking about help to buy. Here are three or four things that may make a big decision about whether help to buy is right for you. Hold on, aren't surveyors meant to be picking up things like cladding before they actually purchase the place? <laughs> Uh, uh, well, that's you... a goalpost change, right, Dominic? Oh. I mean, the cladding thing is a, is a real mess because it was permissioned and then people realized there was a whole different consideration never been in the factors. And now all of a sudden the goalpost reset for everyone and it, it is challenging. So the question is how well we can help anyone to anticipate the kinds of issues that are out there and reach the conclusions that are right for themselves. Yeah. 
Now, Henry Rashen has asked a, a, actually a, um, a very interesting question, and it's a lovely segue into, into how you credit check people, actually, which is, in a circle, how do you prevent an early gainer of the pot from absconding with his newfound swag before contributing his own dues for the full term? In other words, you know, what if somebody either decides to bail out or, or even gets into arrears after they've, after they've been drawn? That is an issue. How do you handle it? Lucy, have you ever heard this question before? <laughs> I've never heard it asked in that particularly lovely way with the newfound swag bag. I've got a lovely image of a swag bag over the shoulder. This is, is a question that we got asked all the time on the phones and it's one of our top sort of frequently asked questions. And of course, the funny thing is when people ask it when they're thinking about joining is they never say, well, you know, what if I run off? What if somebody else runs off with it? Mm-hmm. So um, the mechanism for that, Henry, is that once you get drawn, we don't release the funds for the purchase of the property until you found a property. And then we release those funds directly to the client's solicitor. Uh, so it doesn't hit the client's bank account. So they can't actually just pop off to Barbados and use that money. It has to be used for the purchase of a property. At the end of a circle, we can release it. Um, and so in that way, that really uh, reduces their ability to kind of run off. Of course, they could stop paying after they've bought the house, but actually that's far less likely because, and there's also far less time for them to default because they've got to have been drawn, found the house and bought the house. So over that time, they're continuing to make payments. And if they stop making payments at that point, we don't release the money. You can't insure that risk. You could, but it would be uneconomic, right? Exactly. There was a consideration for some time about things like mortality, et cetera, but the reality has been Dominic and, um, you know, it's one of the things that I knew from my graduate school work on Roscas uh, was the case. Default rates and arrears rates are actually significantly lower in community lending structures and collaborative finance structures like these. We just had to prove that out with our consumer base. And we've been able to do that. So now with over a million pounds that members have drawn since we launched at the beginning of 2019, um, we've had less than a thousand pounds of charge-offs and our typical arrears rates are six to eight individuals and less than 3,000 pounds at any point in time. The key point here is that the mechanism itself is structured to work for members, but it works in one key way by attracting people who think of themselves as savers who have a lump sum earlier than expected. And then we have the structuring mechanisms to make sure that they're not tempted to then turn that into current spending. Now the the default and arrears rates are lower, but they're not non-existent. So presumably you do some sort of credit checks. You you mentioned that you were passing on people's records to the credit rating agencies. So how do you go about credit checking members of circles? How much work do you have to do? Well, the beauty is it's all built into the platform today, but ultimately there are two principal pillars to our evaluation, our underwriting that we have in-house. The first um, is our proprietary credit underwriting model, which allows us to determine what fixed monthly contribution, what the maximum amount we would allow a member to be able to set aside every month is. That leads to that 300 number I referred to before and, and hypothetical example, where that individual can take three spots in 100 pound circle or one 250 spot. The point is we ask for that information as part of their onboarding journey. And then we run over those inputs, um, essentially what is a disposable income number. We build in 
a haircut or a coverage ratio to make sure that there's ample amount for the volatility. We also cross-check the expenses for individuals versus what um, the ONS would predict for someone with that demographic profile to keep them honest, and we use a higher up standard. So there's an underwriting engine that we've built that looks at their current circumstances, what their circumstances would be uh, when their homeowners are substituting their uh, mortgage payments for their rental and their uh, income waterfall. And then finally, we also run a stress test in line with the PRA's guidance of a 300 basis point increase in interest rates and making sure they can still put food on the table for their family, make their stepladder contribution and stay in their home. And so all that's built in automatically to our underwriting platform as it exists today. That's pillar one. Pillar two, we do a, a soft credit quote on the individual to see what their credit history is like. And in that context, we might categorize the individual as a credit builder where they are only able to, or eligible to draw from the second half of the term of their circle in order to mitigate that risk because we wanna get some proprietary payment history from them or a straight pass where they can join us or in the very few cases that we get where we just don't feel like their credit is such that it's something that we should encourage them to join in a group with others. So you do turn people down? Yes, but fortunately, because of that 25 pound price point, odds on, we are able to offer something for almost everyone. Now, I was interested in how you described the, the credit checking process. Um, and forgive me for putting forward one of our themes at, at, at Future of Finance. And, and you know, to go back to that form filling, which you described earlier, um, in a world which ought to be moving towards um, open data. I'm, I'm talking here retail financial services moving towards open data. And you know, as we know, we have this open banking initiative available already. And so third parties are meant to be able to see details of bank accounts held with, with other institutions. So do you, it's clearly not happening now from what you've been saying, but do you envision in the future, perhaps there will be a genuinely um, data-driven, open data, digital identity future in which people don't have to fill in forms and you don't have to run those um, relatively old fashioned types of credit checks because actually you'll know a great deal about people or at least the people will consent to give you a great deal of information about themselves, their finances, their lifestyles, their shopping habits, their interests, their health and so on. And you'll be able to access that um, in an automatic fashion. And that becomes the gatekeeper to the circle. Absolutely. I have a really clear idea where open banking fits into our product roadmap in terms of the underwriting process. And it specifically goes in where we had that ONS cross-check versus self-reported data to be able to have consent to be able to get their actuals. But on top of that, even when you get the unfiltered open banking data, you have to have your own model calibrated to understand what part of that is volatility and what the confidence interval is for that final residual uh, expense you deduct from household income. And so there's an element of credit history that is also behavioral. And until you can capture behavior and therefore be able to forecast um, intent to make ongoing commitments, you want to make sure you have as many different data points from independent sources as possible. And that's one of the reasons we like having the credit bureau numbers as an independent vector to our own calculations. Are you a fan of digital identities? Would they help you? I, I, I would say so. I guess I would ask him what specific application. <laughs> well, so the ability of somebody to prove that they are who they say they are. Yes. Yeah, I'm Absolutely. I think. Oh, so, yeah, I'm interested to see, you know, how 
trusting people will be to take this up and generally we always think oh the younger generation you know do all online banking and we see the older generation more anxious about that but it's interesting to see the younger generation coming through and maybe not being so keen on all of that information being available certainly certainly for me I think it's great the less the less information you have to keep typing in and doing things again you know the efficiency gain is fantastic but um I think it raises really interesting questions for people about how much they want to keep their lives private. If it was pitched to them as they controlled the data, they controlled their identity, and they decided who could who could get to look at it, would that change the conversation with, with the types of customers you have? It was their choice. I think if you give anyone choice of something, that, that helps them feel a bit safer in, in any aspect of life. If they're in control of that, they feel safer. Um, I mean, the choice can sometimes paralyze people. Um, that's the downside of choice, right? But generally people feel safer and more trusting if they're in control of it. Mm-hmm. We've got about 15 minutes left. Let's talk about um, about getting regulated. Uh, as you said right at the outset, Lucy, you are a ROSCA, um, a Rotating Credit and Savings Association, which I, I, I'm not sure how many people have heard of that, but what does that actually mean in terms of getting regulated by the FCA? How are you different from other types of regulated entity and what are the obligations that imposes on you? Yeah, so there isn't a category for Roskas uh, in the FCA. So we're actually regulated yeah. for those listening that are interested. Yet, exactly, Matt, yet. Uh, that's one of the next things on our roadmap. Um, so for those people listening that are kind of very familiar with FCA regulation, we're regulated under 36H, which is running a peer-to-peer electronic platform because that's kind of the closest match um, to what we're doing. And it links into the, the quiz that you mentioned, Dominic, is that uh, all of our members, and they often ask like, why do we have to answer all of these questions? Mm. And to do with the way we're regulated, you know, people need to understand that actually, um, if you look at our trust pilot reviews, for example, everybody that joins thinks of this as a savings product because they're putting money aside and then they get their money out. So it feels, the behavior feels like saving, but actually the mechanism is peer-to-peer lending because you're putting money in, it's getting lent out to everybody else in the circle each month. And then the, the month that you draw, you're actually borrowing. So yes, we're regulated under 36H and the process of getting regulated does take a, a little time um, as Matt can testify to because I was <laughs> I was sort of lucky enough to join at the point we got we got our we're an appointed representative actually we have an appointed representative status which again for anybody listening when you're setting up a fintech is a really good way to get going rather than going for your kind of full authorized status to start with but I was I, I joined uh, Stepladder as Matt was sort of smashing his head on the desk as we got a different case officer every every few months with the FCA so it's one of those processes that just takes a bit of time but you know has been transformational um you know in terms of building that customer trust time is money was it an expensive process there's definitely a lot of um friends and family raise money which we started in the summer 2016 that went to lawyers and outside consultants um but i have to say from my perspective the it was money well spent because the way to make this scalable dominic and we're talking a lot about coming back to this point is it has to be more than just community and a person with a gym bag collecting cash from their neighbors at the barber shop it has to be scalable it has to have connectivity into the rest of the payment system in terms of the credit bureaus visibility and that is a key step in that process is to be as it were inside the perimeter of a wider system in order to be able to tap into all of that scale benefit mm-hmm. Now, you eventually got beyond the friends and family stage in terms of funding and in terms of customers as well. And you raised VC money through Seedcamp and through through Anthemis. 
Um, at, at that time, what was it that attracted them to invest in you? And of course, one of the things they would have looked at is your is your revenue model. How are these people actually going to get paid? So perhaps you could explain to us how you get paid and what it was that the investors liked about the way that you got paid. Lucy, if you want to cover how we get paid, and then I'll talk a little bit yeah. about Seed Camp and Anthemus. So the way we get paid is we take a small fee from our members for when they join our circle. And originally that was conceived just to cost to cover the cost of delivery of service. But actually what that's doing now is actually adding to our revenue because our cost of acquisition is going down so quickly. So um, people pay anywhere between kind of a pound for the smaller circles up to kind of 30 pounds a month in their, their membership fee. Um, and then where our revenue really kicks in is in the transaction services uh, of what they do with their lump sum. So for, for home buyers, that is obviously in the referring to mortgage brokers, to solicitors, to surveyors. And we have this stepladder marketplace that Matt mentioned earlier with about 18 different partners. So everything from kind of um, commuting and, and getting your kind of travel cards and, and saving money on that through to bulb for your uh, utilities. Um, and we get paid referral fees uh, for those. So that's our revenue model. This is a possibly a stupid question in this environment, but um, you said that people saw this as a savings product, even though it's not in regulatory terms, but it, is interest paid on the deposits which people have? And where do those deposits go? It's a good question. No, there's no interest, which actually makes it very attractive uh, in the Middle East. And it's a model that's used a lot in the Middle East. There's no interest paid or received. Uh -huh. And which bank do you work with to, to take those deposits, given you don't have a banking license yourselves? Yeah, so we use an e-wallet provider called Mango Pay, who have their accounts with Barclays. And so right. the money sits in the e-wallet ready for transfer. And it's, it's ring-fenced as client money. Okay. Now, Matt, you were going to talk us through Seedcamp and, and Anthemus, what they liked. So each one of them joined our register at slightly different stages. Seedcamp uh, made their investment in December of 2017. And their investment was to see what would happen with that those first two circles that we had gotten together by hook or by crook with some live outside customers and some friends of Stepladder. And just to prove out that in the real world, not just uh, technical simulation, but that people's real behavior would bear out in that journey. And they were the first outside money to come in who weren't friends and family to Stepladder. Uh, and that basically funded our 2018 runway of being able to run those two beta circles. As we came to the end of 2018, and we'd had Sinead able to buy our home, Amish, uh, Navjot, and others on the journey towards home buying themselves, we went into full launch. And that's when we really consider our numbers in terms of growth to start from is January of 2019. About four months into January uh, 2019 is when Anthemus became very interested. We'd just done a merger with a uh, tech platform that came out of the Zinc program um, called Squad. And together with the tech platform that we had uh, that came over from Squad, along with what Lucy had been able to create in terms of an audience and engaged tune of voice and a clear journey, um, and what we were able to have from a platform perspective, we started to see real growth uptick and conversion improvement. And that's what interested Anthemus, who is a fintech specialist venture capitalist. Now, alongside Anthemus, the money that they were actually administering is part of a BBVA um, managed account specifically focused at early stage businesses that ultimately BBVA sees having potential for their wider use globally. And that was a really attractive fit for us because we had both the better elements of a strategic investor in the business without the poison pill that can sometimes represent, as well as a fintech uh, top, top shelf 
focused venture capitalist, and they got excited when we were starting to show the first signs of product market fit, at least with regard to the onboarding journey and the conversion. There really was a market here and a repeatable process that could be engineered, not just a one-off. Mm-hmm. And what's the, is there a downside to the VC money? You talked about the upside. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a business that, in my mind, is fascinating because it has such great operating leverage characteristics, but that's also a business where if you didn't have breakneck growth, you could still have a really attractive 50 to 100 million pound business. But um, VCs really wanna have billion plus businesses. And so sometimes that can create tension. And it's about finding the right partners who share your trajectory for growth and understand the strategic trade-offs it can take. But again, sometimes it's good to have that voice saying, actually press a little bit harder on the accelerator. And. I'm glad I asked you that question because you're now engaged in this in crowdfunding. You're going down a, a different path in terms of funding the next stage of your growth. Why did you choose to do a crowdfunding rather than go back to the VCs or friends and family for that matter? Well, this is really about involving our community. So many of our members were asking, like, how can I invest in Stepladder? And of course, when it was only open to professional investors and VCs with sort of minimum tickets of 10,000, that, that's not accessible. And so, you know, hopefully over the last hour, your listeners will have realized that you know, we're, we're about community. We're about including people. We want to we want people to feel part of something and make an impact. And so it was very much about opening it up to our community. And what's so lovely is the last time I looked, which was about one minute before I jumped on this call, we had 287 new investors. And many of those are putting in 10, 20, 100 pounds. And they feel, you know, they write to us and they say, oh, I've just, I own a little piece of stepladder. And that is so important to have that kind of community engagement. So that's really what this this round was about for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much complimentary, Dominic. Well, and what do, what what do those new those two hundred eighty seven new investors feel they're in, investing in in terms of of long term growth? And I don't just mean um, you'll have nineteen on the first of May and you'll have one hundred and nineteen on the first of May twenty twenty two. The core product are there other products which you're you're looking to develop? For example, can this lending circle borrowing circle idea be applied to buying anything? including some of those things they're previously wasting their money on before they decided to save for a, a deposit on a house. So I'm so glad you asked. I mean, I think what what, inve- what our new investors feel they're investing in is, is, you know, a new category of finance. We talked earlier on about collaborative finance or social finance. And really, this is a new category, a, a new way of making money less transactional and more, more engaging and more sort of... Um, more social and community focused. And absolutely, this can be used for for anything really. You can just be limited by your imagination. So as we said, we started with home buying because it's a generational, big, chunky challenge here in the UK with quite a defined kind of market of first time buyers. But we've we've done a pilot uh, with a fashion company to buy handbags and um, handbags and shoes. I mean, I'm sure you'll disapprove of this, Dominic. But people mm-hmm. were spending 500 pounds on yeah. handbags and shoes. Can you believe? Yeah. So um, yeah, that was one pilot we did. We've just done a partnership with Rewire, the remittance company, for people to send funds back home. Um, other people that have been drawn in our first step circles have used the money to start uh, investing in an ISA, or they've paid off a car loan, or they've used it for education. And so there are so many uses um, that you know a Roscoe can be tied to. And if I may pick up from where Lucy was saying, when we have 
conversations with prospective international partners, which is, again, that next stage of growth that we see coming over the horizon. Um, it is very much about adapting our proposition because in the case where I, where I say these in Brazil, they're used from everything from washer dryers and refrigerators all the way through to buying a property off plan from a developer. The point is adapting the use case for the market where it can really fundamentally create a new alternative, an empowering alternative in the financial landscape versus the alternatives, which in many cases are uh, frankly punitive credit. Now, one of the, one of the to go back to the, what the 287 investors are actually investing in, what, what the growth story is, one of the things I understand you're planning to do is to license this technology um, exactly. to other organizations who could offer this, I suppose, as an app or in a value challenger bank or a, a payments provider, a Revolut or a Monzo, whoever it is, could could add this. Um, what's your what's your thinking behind that? What's the template that you're following with that idea? Um, it's a, it's a little non-standard, but uh, I think a lot of Ocado here in the UK, in the sense that what they've been able to do is dial into something that is truly industry leading. I mean. Uh, heads and shoulders above anyone else in terms of roboticizing the the actual packing uh, of groceries and then licensing that out to others, whether it's in the continent or in North America. And that becomes essentially you go from a 30% finance business into a 70 or 80% SaaS-like software business because you're helping deliver a solution where the alternative of building it yourself is going to be fraught and probably would be underfed. And I think that that really is a big thought process behind BVA's investment in us is can we hack being able to make Roscoe's digital and therefore offer it back to a customer base that knows them already but hasn't been able to engage with them that way. So Ocado's business is not really about delivering the groceries at all. It's actually a technology business, really. It's an interesting way of looking at them and certainly um, certainly accords to my experience. But um, the, the markets you're looking at, which are the ones you think are most attractive for that type of expansion? I think Geo Geographically or, or in terms of products, you know? I think about this an awful lot. I believe that this is specifically well-suited to markets where this is a curbside product. It's still very community, but where it hasn't been effectively digitized and yet digital banking is taking off. So the obvious choices would be in places like Africa where e-money has become widespread adopted. Why shouldn't the Rosca piggyback on that e-money adoption? The same thing in Brazil, which is one of the most active and energetic uh, fintech markets in the world. And yet the consorcios in Brazil is where I actually studied these originally uh, are still very much seen as a local operator product or an asset management side of a bank branches business. To make that digital, those are the kind of places that come to the top of mind. In fact, we're actually very close to announcing our, our first uh, trial in Southeast Asia, where again, these are widely used in countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand, where we can again work with a local bank who has a footprint and a platform, but isn't able to offer the ROSCA digitally yet to all of their smartphone uh, online banking customers. Oh, I'm interested that you don't see an opportunity with the proliferation, I suppose, of, of financial services, fintechs in the UK, or do you? I We absolutely love partnering in the UK. I think there, honestly, it's about finding the right fit. But, you know, in emerging markets where there's literally no education about the ROSCA and it's a curbside product, making it digital and scalable is exactly what we've hacked here in our home market. Uh -huh. Well, we have only 20 seconds left. So, 
Um, I'm going to draw our discussion to a close now, and I'd like to 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 thank you both for taking the time to to be with us. Um, Lucy, Matt, I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. We certainly have. We've had some very interesting and thoughtful and searching questions there. And uh, I'd like to thank our audience for, for their interest and especially for, for submitting those questions. Um, it's been an interesting experience for us at Future of Finance to do one of these studies for the first time. 